I'm Anna Lee Ashford. Hi, this is Queen Leslie. I'm Andrew Keenan Bulger. Queen Leslie Margarita. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. I'm Katie Finnerin. Hi, I'm Laura Osnes, and you're listening to Theater People. Welcome to the Theater People podcast. I'm Patrick Lyons. In May of 1996, just a week or so after I graduated high school, as a graduation gift, my best friends Allison, Lucas, and Rachel agreed to indulge me in my obsessive desire to get to New York City to see a new musical called Rent, which had just opened on Broadway a few weeks before. Somehow we'd found out that we could get $20 front row tickets if we got to the theater early enough and were willing to wait in line all day. It sounded like a great deal to us. We got there later than we wanted to, around 7.30 a.m., I think, and we spent the first part of our day counting and recounting the people ahead of us in line, trying to be sure we'd actually get tickets. We waited for 11 hours on that sidewalk in front of the theater, sitting and sometimes sleeping beneath the life-sized pictures of that gorgeous cast standing at the foot of the stage, singing what we'd come to find out were seasons of love. Details from that day are burned into my brain. I remember Lucas, just as we were finally being ushered into the theater to pay for our tickets, nervously putting a $20 bill in his mouth and then spitting it out at me, only to watch it disappear into the subway grade. I remember when we got to our seats being so overcome by being there that I just started to cry. And I remember as the show started, when the full cast made their way to the stage to sing the solo song, the audience went so crazy that I could actually feel the seat shaking. that show changed, it changed a lot of people. I remember being different coming out of the theater than I had been going in. So it's near impossible for me to describe how honored and honestly nervous I was to be meeting and interviewing one of the show's stars, Anthony Rapp, 23 years to the week after I five. I have to say, it may be weird, but for a guy who's built his career and trading on nerdiness, Anthony Rapp is sexy status. He's cool and party and interesting, and it was just so awesome that I've gotten a chance to sit down and talk to him. So anyway, here's our conversation. true, true honor to meet you, first of all, and for you to have been here to do our Theater People podcast. Welcome, and thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I guess we should just jump in and, and talk about If Then. Okay. If you don't mind. Uh, if Wouldn't it be weird if I did mind? You know what? I like, I agreed to this, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> if you could maybe, if we could start, if you could give like a synopsis, just like a, so for people who may not have seen it yet. Um, it's about a character named Elizabeth who is played by someone most people I think would have heard of. <laughs> this little Adina Menzel? Sutton. I'm not sure if that's really her name. Probably not. But uh, she's she plays Elizabeth who is moving back to New York in her late 30s trying to start her life over after an unhappy marriage that finally she had the courage to end. And the show t- takes place, it starts on the day she comes back and it starts with a very small decision whether she goes in one direction with her one old friend Lucas who's played by myself or with her new friend Kate who's played by the wonderful actress LaShawns and then it follows both paths it sort of crisscrosses it's sort of like a you know alternate history alternate timeline situation which is unusual for theater maybe he's been seen a little more in some movies read you know in some novels or short stories but uh, where, so as an audience, you're literally watching her life unfold in both directions, and it jumps back and forth, and different little decisions and different big decisions happen in both lives that affect all of the people in both of her lives. So uh, it's, it's about, you know, the, the, the tagline is it's about how chance and choice collide, but I think that's actually a very accurate way to describe it. You know, and if it, 
I think so many people who are coming are seem like what they share with me anyway um, is that it really does make them think about their own lives and their own choices and it, it makes people it can be very moving for people and very you know it's also entertaining I think but uh, it's unusual in so many ways and I think one of the ways in which it is unusual that it, it feels very very personal and relevant to people's real lives that they really live in the real world in ways that you don't always feel when you go to see a musical theater piece. Somewhere there's a me who never loved that other you who liked you fine, I guess, as buddies more or less, and that would do. And somewhere there's a you who simply worshipped other me, and we were wild and hot and all the things we're not, and we were Somewhere I'm the president with plans that never fail And somewhere I'm a rebel king And somewhere I'm in jail I didn't chase my glory days long after they were done I found myself a woman or a man and had a son Some other days Something I was thinking about on the way over here is that like this show particularly maybe in this season feels like a really ambitious show You know, it feels like even just by virtue of it being an original musical, um, and for me also because it's a show that, though I think it's very easy to follow, does kind of make you pay attention and ask what <laughs> you think. Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about about the ambition of the show? Well, I think the ambition of all of the creative team, Michael Greif, the director, who directed Rent and Next to Normal, and Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkey, who wrote Next to Normal and this, and David Stone, our producer, who's produced many, many shows, most famously Wicked, but mm -hmm. next to normal also. Um, the ambition is to do, I guess, sort of to just reiterate what I said, is to, to make theater, musical theater, that, which is in and of itself always a little heightened or fantastical just by the virtue of the fact that people are up there singing, which doesn't necessarily happen too often in real life <laughs> right. for most people. Um, but make, mu make musical theater that does reflect the real modern world that we live in today. And using the medium to explore nooks and crannies of the human experience that don't, you can't, you know, that it's not just sort of like reading a textbook about that or watching a documentary, you, yeah. you know, through an artistic, creative, unusual medium called musical theater. Yeah. Uh, to do all that. So I think that's the ambition. And yes, for the form of it is also ambitious in the sense of, you know, jumping back and forth between these alternate timelines which is, again, unusual for musical theater. As far as we know, it's the only musical that we can think of that does that specific thing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's somebody... Some we're we're going to get you know. tweets about that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so that's ambitious. But really, I think the overarching ambition is always to make something that feels human and alive and modern and, you know, uh, again, recognizable, reflective of the, the, the human experience of what it means to be alive in New York today. Yeah, and I was going to say that Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie also did Next to Normal, which you said. And it seems so cool that these guys are able to get these shows produced in such a grand way. They're shows that are not, um, I don't know how you would even say it. I mean, like Next to Normal is a show about a woman dealing with depression, you know, and her family and, and that. And it's so, it is such a, an amazing show that I think you were involved with at one point. Right? Yeah, I did, I, did, I did the first full workshop ish you know whatever it was the it was part of nymph so it was like a i don't know if it would call be be called a workshop ex exactly but it was the first sort of staging of it and at that time it was called feeling electric and i played right. i played the doctor in that which i always thought i was a little young for yes um, <laughs> but i was you know i'd met tom and brian before and 
they be, I become friendly with them, and then they asked me to do, it, and I was thrilled to be a part of it. And and but that show took many many. I mean, it, it kept changing a lot over the years, especially once Michael Greif got involved and he helped really hone and shape it. But always at the core of it was that powerful story of this woman and her family. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that really, um, it was an amazing show. And I, I think it's, it just was interesting to me. It was a hard show to describe, you know, <laughs> when someone says like, what is next to normal about? It's hard to say, well, it's kind of about this, but it's really, you know, a really fun and exciting show that, you know, I'm, I'm just glad I found an audience. Yeah. But I mean, it's all, both of these shows, what they have in common, aside from the writers and director, is the producer David Stone. And mm-hmm. I mean, David, by chance, went to see Next to Normal at Nymph. Sort of, it was the, there was like a weird circumstance around his availability to do that. Because, you know, Nymph, there's only, there's so many shows, there's right. like only a few performances. So he happened to be there, and he was very excited and moved by it, and then he got involved with it. So, but he had the courage of his convictions to see it through, even though it wasn't quite ready for primetime fully. To, to work with everyone involved to keep developing it and had the faith that it, the power that it had, yes, it's not like a, you wouldn't think of it as like a slam dunk commercial thing, and yet it did make money on Broadway, not a lot of money. It wasn't like the hugest hit, but it, it did have a commercial life that far exceeded anyone's expectations. And then it also was, you know, it won the Pulitzer and all that. But, but it was, it was, you know, David Stone, of course, he has like he has Wicked, which is a commercial juggernaut, right? Right, of course. He can do anything he wants in a certain sense, but a lot of people, I think, in his position would just sort of keep trying to strike that lightning twice. And he has since then continued to find things that are artistically ambitious and exciting. And I think that that's an incredible testament to who he is as a as a creative visionary producer. And so we're just—he's the common thread to right. have to have the willingness to take this kind of risk. I mean, you know, you could say that the risk in our case of if then is mitigated by the fact that Adina happens to be one of the biggest stars alive today, right yeah. now. Certainly, in terms of people who are performing live on Broadway eight times a week, you know, there the, there really aren't any other theater. I mean, she's done a couple of films, of course, and done a little TV, but she's really a theater star. Right. Who's a box office draw? And there's like that doesn't throw Well, thank you. I mean, I, I would never pretend like I'm on the level of Adina. I mean, but thank, yeah, I mean, I, yes, I, I imagine there, may, there are some people who see my name, and yes, they might partake, and I'm very grateful for that. But, I mean, <laughs> but, it's, but there's no comparison with the right. level of Adina's yeah. draw and fame. It is a you crazy know, thing to sit in that when, when she makes her entrance, yeah. and the audience just goes crazy. But she's earned it. I mean, she's earned it over these many, almost two decades. Of, yeah. and, you know, she hasn't done a lot of things, but what she's done has been indelible and meaningful and important and she has transformed the landscape of what it means to be a musical theater actress i think for many 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 people yes and she's but she also works her butt off and she does show up eight times a week 100 percent. you know so she's like old school in that way but she's also new school and like her you know the the style of singing that she 
you know, does. I mean, and she's very, very contemporary and, and part of today's world, but has that sort of old school work ethic mm-hmm. and, and showing up, you know, eight times a week to, to do her absolute best. Like, you know, a friend of a friend came to a matinee last a couple weeks ago and they were like, that was no matinee performance. You know, I mean, that's just right. the, that's just the truth. Yeah. Like, no, none of us is, are going to like there's no such thing as like phoning it in. So I mean I think that she's she's earned that kind of right to be <laughs> such a big theater star. Yeah, for sure. Now you were you've been with the show from the workshop phase and I, if I'm not mistaken they wrote this musical and this character with you in mind. Yes. How how has the show changed and how much input did you have in that change? Um it's it's changed a lot, but the the Liz storyline mostly is this very close to the same as it was from the beginning? The Beth storyline went through the biggest overhaul. Like her job was very different in the first draft than it became later. Um, the nature of my of Lucas's relationship with Beth was always very similar, and the nature of Lucas's relationship with Liz and David was very similar from the beginning. But there have been like new, you know, other songs that were written throughout, and you know. But but the basic structure of the one day going with one friend or the other and what happens in those, you know, some of the big signpost things of, mm-hmm. of, especially of Liz's life, have always been there. And in terms of input, I mean, a lot of it was sometimes just like on a line-by-line basis when, when we were in rehearsal and Brian would bring in some stuff and I'd try it and he and I would talk about some of the language of it or you know the rhythms of it or whatever but it's very it was very minor but very collaborative in the sense of if the if the rhythm of a joke didn't feel exactly right in one way we could talk about it and figure it out together kind of thing but overall the 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 main thread of Lucas's journey all came from Brian and Tom Mm -hmm. and then I just did my best to try to bring it to life. I was thinking about um, how in Rent you know, Rent it takes place in New York. If that takes place in New York, two very different stories in New York in two very different times. And I was wondering, I actually, I wrote this question out because I wanted to ask it right. <laughs> <laughs> I do that sometimes and I'm like, I know I'm going to mess this up. Um, I, th- I know that you've lived in New York a long time uh, and in both stories, in both shows, you feel not just like a backdrop, but also a character. How does the New York of each show feel different to you from the other? Well, the period of the show, the, the time that the show takes place is very different. I mean, I lived in the East Village on 10th Street between 1st and A when I first did Rent, which was now almost 20 years ago with the workshop in the the fall of 94. That neighborhood has utterly transformed. I mean, when I first moved in there, Avenue A, if uh, if you went below 6th Street, it was like scary, like people lurking in doorways and, you know, um, and now it's like condos. I mean, it's still, you know, Manhattan has changed tremendously. So if then is is so much about a contemporary New York that is getting in some ways gentrified and, you know, and people are being driven out into the margins who, you know, the lower income folks and the artists are being, in that, and the show does, you know, touch on those themes, but it also is about the kind of reclaim, you know, it touches on the themes of, that have happened with the High Line and, right. you know, reclaiming, trying to make the city a little more inhabitable for all kinds of people. So it 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 it's a it, yeah, it's just that rent was about New York in the early 90s, which is a very different 
New York in many ways than, than New York Today, and If Then is about New York Today. It's so interesting because both shows were written and performed originally in the time in New York in which they take place. Yeah. Did you find them to both be authentic? Authentic to our, I mean, it's, and it, you know, If Then, is, they're both romantic, though, like in different ways, but like capital R romantic, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rent is based on La Boheme, which is an opera, so there's like a, a grand emotional life to these characters, and and you know, it's when you have cops singing, <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of heightened, yeah. you know. And if then is is romantic, is a romantic view of New York, you know. But I think it's a it's a New York that most of us living in the, in the areas where we live, it it reflects the basic feeling of what it's like to be, you know, going into Madison Square Park feels I think a lot like yeah, like you see, you it. know, you see it. But it is it is you know a sort of. I wouldn't say magical reality kind of thing, but there's a you know it's 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 beautified in a certain sense, but on purpose, you know, right. like again in keeping with the sort of romantic theme. And I don't just mean like romantic, like boy meets girl romantic, but like in the classical sense of what romantic means, right. you know. Yeah. Um, last question about it then. It, how, how does it work rehearsing a show with two alternate realities? Did you guys rehearse it just start to finish, or did you break the stories down? Um, we, we broke the stories down, but the, the main thing about breaking the stories down is that the, the show has like little time jumps within each story. So a lot of it, in terms of breaking it down, was to make sure that we all were on the same page about all of everything that happened that you don't get to see. So that we all had those details filled in that we were telling the same story. You know, there's a big jump in time in the, in the Beth storyline between Lucas and Beth. And so we, we were... You know, we had good conversations about what had happened in that time, so that could be as specific to us as possible. And then, it, you know, what it—I mean—that's always the thing with acting. I think is like you have to you get inside the the circumstances of the story and you, you try to make it as specific and real and alive as possible. And in this case, we had to do that twice. Right. <laughs> um, can Can we go back to your humble beginnings? Sure. So you made, if I'm not mistaken, your Broadway debut when you were about ten, right? Mm-hmm. And you grew up in, in Joliet, Illinois. Mm-hmm. So how does a 10-year-old kid from Joliet, Illinois become aware of a Broadway audition and then get to Broadway? I had Chicago. I was I grew up outside Chicago. Joliet is like 40 miles outside Chicago. And uh, I'd been doing a lot of community theater. And then there was a director that I did, I don't know, three or four shows with who encouraged my mom, who was a single mother nurse. With I have an older brother and older sister. She was, you know, I don't know how she, you know, this is the kind of thing, like, looking back, I had no idea at the time I was a kid how she juggled all that, but she did. I can't um, imagine. But she, he encouraged her to take me to Chicago to audition for professional work. He was, he was like, I think he could get work. And she's like, okay, you know, and right. that was something that I really wanted to do. So we did, and I got something pretty quickly, Evita. The, the, it was the first national tour, but it had been sitting down in Chicago, and they had to replace a kid, and so I came in and replaced him, and I did it for a few months. And then through the, somewhere in there, I got Chicago agents, and then one of those Chicago agents connected me with the audition for The Little Prince and the Aviator. So I, I don't I don't know all I'm not privy to exactly you how know, it all works how it all worked at the time because I was just sort of going where I was going you know so how does a single mom take you to New York to do the job? She got um, like her sister stayed with 
my brother and sister for a bit. I mean, we weren't here that long because the show was really short-lived. But the plan was to, they, they did come, my brother and sister did come, and our plan was if we were going to move here, we were going to move here and then, you know, find schools and all that oh, stuff. Oh, wow. So your family would have uprooted yeah. and, and come here. Yeah. Wow. And they did for a bit, but then the show closed so quickly. We previewed for two weeks and never officially opened. Was it a good show? I don't think so. <laughs> Do I mean, you remember that experience? I remember things. About, I remember a lot of things about it. Yeah, I remember songs from it. I remember, you know, but I, I can't imagine it was any good. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I had a great time doing it. I was ten years old. And then you go back, and then and then, but the, we were here, and I got an audition to uh, be in the the national touring company of The King and I with Yo Brenner. Oh. And I got cast as Louis pretty quickly after that wow. happened. So then I went on tour with that, and Mom went on tour with me, and. You know, these are the things, again, that my, my mom, who has since passed away, but I, I, I would love to talk to her more about, like, how she made all that work. Because, I mean, there were, it was hard on my brother and sister, I think, at times. Because they were also, like, I was then 10, and they were, like, 13 and 14. And your, your brother's the great player. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at, at the time, 13 and 14, it's a hard time of life for yes. most people. And I think it was really hard for them to not have her around, you know, because she was a single mother and... Right. Who raised them while you guys were? At well, there was there were different people, including her sister, and then I think they did live with my dad and his wife for part of the summer. You know, they did spend some time with us on the road, also. But it was sort of like a mishmash, and it was hard. And then, did you go back for a time into regular high school, like regular normal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, while I was on tour, we had tutors. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but the child labor laws have changed a lot. I mean, I did eight shows a week as a kid. Wow. I had, I had no problem doing that, but the kids on Broadway don't. Anymore. Oh, really? Everyone I've I've met all the, I've met the kids at Les Mis and Billy Elliot and Matilda they all none of them do eight shows a week. Oh wow! And there's some laws about it now they can't. I mean, you know, it's a very different. You guys, Anthony <laughs> Rapp can do it. It can be done. You know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and then you had your big your big film break was Adventure to Babysitting. Yes, and, and I was you 15. Yeah, 15 when you filmed that. Mm-hmm. And and you filmed it in Chicago, I'm assuming. We filmed mostly in Toronto, and then some in Chicago, and then a teeny bit in LA. And uh, and you're in high school at that time. Mm-hmm. And my my dad's now his second wife, who's now they they got divorced since then, but she was a lawyer and helped work out. I mean, very graciously helped work out some sort of emancipation thing for me, so that I could do that job. I was still in high school, and I'd made up the work, but there was, like, so I didn't have to work under child labor laws that I could be emancipated. Oh, wow. So you were, like, freed from your parents, basically. Technically, but, I mean, I still lived at home. But, I mean, right. but it, it, what it meant was that they didn't have to have, you know, that I could work normal hours. Wow. But, and again, these laws might have changed since then, too. This is, this is you know, 27 years ago. The movie, it, like, lives in the hearts of everybody, like, in our generation. <laughs> was it a big deal for, like, was it a huge deal for you when it came out? Did it change your life? No, it didn't change my life. I mean, it was a blast. I loved it. It changed my life in terms of a personal experience, but it didn't change my life in any sort of real material way. I um, mean, I, we, you know, we weren't paid that much money, so it didn't like transform my, you know, financial circumstances. And mm-hmm. I was still in high school. I went back to Juliet, you know, and lived my life. Was know? the movie like a big hit when it came out? It wasn't a big hit. It did okay. It made like thirty-five million dollars at the time, which today's dollars might be what. 80, 70, uh-huh. you know, 60, you know, it was like a medium thing, but it certainly wasn't like a blockbuster, And the, but it's had this life, it's yeah. it's like lasted. I mean, what a, what a good movie. Thank you, <laughs> yeah, I'm really proud of it. Um, I was thinking about like the, for me, the first big theater thing that I knew about you was Six Degrees of Separation. Mm-hmm. How did that job come about for you? 
Um, just a regular audition, but I had, I had done another John Guare play at the Goodman Theater in Chicago called Landscape of the Body, yes. which was a, it's an amazing play. An amazing play. And I, so I was 16 at that time, and I'm playing Bert, the character, you know, the, the son. And John Guare came to see it, because um, it was a pretty major production. It was one of the, f- my understanding is it was one of the first major productions in, like, decades, or, you know, since the, first, since the play first came out. So he came, and we all went out to dinner afterwards, and he was, like, very... And, I, and then I drove him back to his wow. hotel afterwards. And, and that was a very, very special experience for me. And he was, like, really moved by the, by the production, and he was really... It, the whole thing seemed very meaningful to him, and that was all incredible. So a couple of years later, when I'm in New York and I have an audition for Six Degrees of Separation, he remembered me, and, you know, that was nice, but I still had to audition and, and get the part. That play, if I'm not mistaken, is staged in a way where the actors, when you're not on stage, you sit in the front row. But that's the way the original production was staged, yeah. And, wh- I mean, what did, what was your takeaway from that? I mean, you got to watch that amazing I play got to tonight. I got to watch Soccer Channing every night. Oh, goodness gracious. And, I mean, I feel like it was, it was like a master class. She was amazing. And yeah. she wasn't, I mean, she was a wonderful actress, but she was so good at... Um, reading an audience and you know like that that play was very funny there were a lot of laughs but she knew how to ride the laughs and never milk them never ham it up but just know when something was going to keep going and building and be able to sustain it but again just like in in the most alive present not super technical but you had to have technical skill Mm -hmm. but to be able to still just let it happen organically it was really amazing and it's a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, when I read that play before my audition, I was like, this is one of the most incredible things I've ever yeah, read. Yeah, I think it's my favorite play. Landscape of the Body is up there, too. John Ware, great. one of my yes. favorite writers. Yes. So how old were you when you did that? I was uh, 18. Yeah, I was 18. And did you live in New York full-time at that point? Yeah, I moved to New York in the fall of 89 to go to NYU. And I oh. went there for one semester and dropped out. And oh. then the following spring is when I got six degrees. Were you an acting student? No, I was a film student. Interesting. Did you ever? Did you ever want to study acting? Did you ever like? A I have. Study? I mean, I have studied acting, but not. I didn't want to go to a BFA program because I was doing it professionally. I wanted to study other things. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't need training, but right. I just, I just want. I didn't want to go to a conservatory program right. or something. So, how does your like? What, what does your career really look like between like six degrees of separation and rent? Um, I did uh, school ties in that time. I did dazed and confused in that time. I did a really cool play called Sophistry by Jonathan Mark Sherman that had Ethan Hawke and Steve Zahn and um, Calista Flockhart wow. and Austin Pendleton at Playwrights Horizons. It was a, you know, this is before everybody was sort of known more, yeah. and it was a really wonderful experience. I did a play at Atlantic Theater Company called uh, Landscape of the, or um, called uh, Trafficking in Broken Hearts with Giancarlo Esposito and... Wow. And Anna Shapiro directed that. Wow. You know, I mean, I, so I was doing, and I did uh, Race in Captivity, Nikki Silver play mm-hmm. as did a vineyard. Did you consider moving to L.A. to pursue No. TV, I mean, I've, I've spent time out there, <laughs> yeah. but, and I have pursued, while well, I, I mean, I've spent time out there like pilot season or whatever, mm-hmm. but I just, it's not my thing. Okay, so the, fa- I, I'm not going to talk your ear off about rent, I promise, but the famous story is that you were working at Starbucks when you got the, the audition, is that right? Yes. Did people recognize you when you were working a job like that? Only, there was, do you know Matt Lillard? He's a, Matthew Lillard yeah. from Scream. He came into my store. I didn't, I didn't get very many hours because it was like, believe it or not, there was a time when Starbucks was not in every corner. They I were, remember that. They were just rolling out, so 
I had, I couldn't even get very many hours. So. <laughs> but one day I was I was behind you know behind the counter and he he and I had met like at some event or something you know and had a not really friendly not friends but like friendly encounter you know. Mm-hmm. And he recognized me. It was like one of those moments. Like he's like, "Hey, dude, hey." But and he, I think he felt a little bad that I was behind the counter because he knew I was an actor. But then, but he was nice, you know. And so that was that was that was the only time that I remember getting recognized. People and, didn't remember, like the, the guy from Adventures of Babysitting just made my latte. No, <laughs> wow. no, I don't. Re- I don't remember that happening. I don't know. Amazing. Um, I was thinking. Are there ever are there any questions that people don't ask you about rent that you wish you got? So I've been asked so many Every questions over the years question. that I just have no. I mean, it would be I don't even know. <laughs> um, my husband went running this morning and he was listening to rent. He just like got excited about this interview and he was like listening to rent. He came back and he said, "You have to ask Anthony Rapp where he thinks there's like the line that Mark Cohen has, which is uh, because I'm the one of us to survive." And he said, "You have to ask him where he thinks." Mark would be now? Like, what would Mark's life look... What is Mark doing now? I mean, I would like to believe that Mark kept... Like, that the film that he made maybe was good. You never know. You know, But at least it was meaningful, I think. I would like to believe that he he kept trying to make work that was meaningful and relevant, you know, and important. But, you know, you never know. I mean, he might have wound up working at Comedy Central. I mean, (laughs) you know... do you ever have do you ever have those thoughts, or is rent something that you love doing, but you kind of put it behind you? Well, I mean, I, no, I don't think I don't think too much about where they would be because I always, <laughs> but I don't think of that about any work that I do. Is sort of like the, the everything feels very self contained to me mm-hmm. um, in terms of the the arc of that story is that story, but it's not like it's compartmentalized, like locked in a corner, you know, and a and and the door closed on yeah. it. It's still very much a part of my life for sure. When you came into the show, was it um, was it like a fully formed show, or did you guys like did you really like workshop it and get new stuff and and try out new stuff and give suggestions? Well, it was a draft. It was a fully formed draft of the show, but it, we did keep working it throughout the whole. You know, the the, the ten. I mean, we didn't. The, the the first thing was the ten performance workshop, which was there was like a two week or two and a half week rehearsal period. So there wasn't a lot of revision that happened during that time there was some and then in the meantime Jonathan and I had become friendly and he would share with me some of the stuff that he was writing for the new production and mm-hmm. he was you know that was very special to me to be a part of that process to the degree that I was that he would you know share you know he called me up on the phone and when I was in Oklahoma doing Twister right which was a very unhappy creative experience <laughs> and the, one of the highlights was that when he called me and he played for me over the phone a, a version of what you own saying that he'd written it for me and that was like a really really special moment you're living in america at the end of the millennium you're living in america leave your conscience at the tone and when you're living things that happened but I mean and then and the show itself changed a lot between 94 and what became the 96 off Broadway and then Broadway productions but but again the like very much like next normal or if then some of the very very strong powerful core of it had was always there from my first encounter with it Mm -hmm. 
You write so beautifully in your book about the first time you as a cast sang Seasons of Love. <clears throat> and Steve, my husband, was saying to me today, you know, what about the first time you heard La Vie Bohème? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... My, my very first encounter of listening to that was like, oh, that's a cool, fun song at first. Like, oh, and I get to lead it? That's nice. That's fun. I'm, and then I didn't yet know, of course, that I'd get to sing it at the table. The need to express, to communicate, to going against the grain, going insane, going mad. To love attention, no pension, to more than one dimension, to starving for attention, hating convention, hating pretension. Not to mention, of course, hating dear old mom and dad. That song, towards the end of that song, you know, that big moment where everybody together sings out to faggots, lesbians, dykes, cross-dressers, to, to people living with not dying from disease. Let he among us without sin be the first to condemn la vie bohème. So this is 90, now 95, 94. Well, no, the first time was 94, so almost 20 years ago. The landscape of the world has changed a lot around these issues. So, but to be a part of something that was going to be saying that so directly and openly and unabashedly and joyfully, it, it was it was so uh, exciting and and so sh- and shocking in the best way, like like a jolt. Like I couldn't believe that that was what was coming out of the speakers of my little boombox, and that I was going to get to be a part of something that was putting that into the world. You also, if I'm not mistaken, came out during that time, right? Before. the I came out, I did a production, well, I replaced John Cameron Mitchell in Desi of Me, which was the the kind of sequel to The Normal Heart. It was, right. it was, it was Larry Kramer's play that was, went back, you know, sort of went back and forth between the present day when his character, his stand-in for himself, Ned, mm-hmm. was undergoing some treatments and looking back on his life. And so it was like flashing back and forth between his childhood mm-hmm. and his present you know so that and meeting Larry Kramer and getting to be a part of that was an incredibly galvanizing experience so you know I came out by thanking my then partner in my bio so it was like on a very small scale it wasn't like you know I wasn't like a Hold big famous person you know yeah. kind of thing but that's you know and of course once you're out you're never back in which is but that's my that was my intention so but it was during rent that that was the first big high profile thing that I did that where that became a part of the platform I wanted to talk about your book I bought it the day it came out and I loved it thank you and uh, I'm wondering what made you decide you wanted to write a book and what your process of, of writing the book was well there there's a really wonderful coffee table book that people kind of refer to as the rent bible oh right um, I remember that book that book was put together by a guy named Rob Weisbach, who had, at the time had his own imprint at Morrow, William Morrow. And so he put that book together. And during that time, he met with all of us and talked to us. And, you know, we were part of the oral history component of the book. And then I also submitted some photographs that got published in the book. And um, But in one of our conversations, one of the things that he did as a publisher was approach people that he thought might have a book in them. Oh, wow. It was sort of one of the things. And he asked me if I'd... And I'd written stuff growing up, but I hadn't tried to write a book. But we were talking, and, and he was like, would you like to write a book? And I was like, well, wow, I don't know. I'd like to try. I don't know. <laughs> and, and as we were talking, he had lost his father when he was in his mid-20s. And my mom was still alive, but she was near the end of her life. It was very clear that that was the case. And he asked me if I would think about writing about that. And as I do so often, I said yes without really knowing... What, what it would fully entail or how I would do it or, um, you know, that it would be the hardest thing I ever did in my whole life. But right. 
uh, I said, yes, I'd like to try. And I started, so I started like experimenting with how I, you know, like he said, well, just try to write, you know, scenes or things that happen just to see if you can find a way that you'd want to approach it. And so I started, and at first it was too, it was too dry. It was like I was writing articles mm-hmm. or like essays. And then he's like, no, really try to write a scene like you're writing a novel. Not like you're making things up, but try to, you know, capture it the way you, if you were, you know, if you were writing a scene between two characters, write that. And as soon as I started doing that, there was like, yes, this is something that could work. So it took a really long time, but... Um, <laughs> How long did it take you to write uh, that? Well, I mean, mostly, I, I mean, there were, I would sort of write in bursts, and then I would, it was, it was really, it was really difficult, because I felt like I, to write it the way that I wanted to write it, I had to be really present to every moment of it again, live through each moment again, and living through each moment the first time was pretty hard yeah. in time, so... I would because sort of, the book isn't just about your experience in rent. It's right. so much more about your life at that time. And you know, it's it's really it's it's a it's a mem. I mean, it's a memoir of essentially like a two and a half three year period. That, and then it flashes back to other little moments here and there. But being in high school with Andy Dick. Well, being in high school with Andy Dick. <laughs> um, but but uh, you know, the the my first audition for Rent, and then through a little time passed when my mom dies, and that's about three years, and um, you know. I had to live through each moment again to, to write about it, and it was hard enough to write to live through the first time. So, I tr- and I tried all these different things. I tried, you know, putting myself on a schedule and giving right. myself goals, and, and mostly I, I really felt like there was a huge anvil hanging over my head of this thing that I knew I wanted to finish and couldn't bring myself to finish. And then finally, out of nowhere, I like the last like third of it just sort of like poured out of me. And in the meantime, Rob had left that company. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd actually had so my contract had been canceled, so I didn't even have a contract to finish it anymore, which I, you know, totally understood because I'd taken too long. And then, but when I finally finished draft, I got in touch with him. He had landed again at Simon and Schuster. Oh. And and I and I said, I have no idea if you're still interested in this, but I have something. What could you? Would you see it? And he said, right away, he was like, Yes, of course. Wow. And then, and then it, they put it out and. And I didn't expect anything of it. I really didn't. I, it was just sort of at that point. It was just like a, a like a, a, a burden off my back of this, you know, completion thing. Mm-hmm. This thing that it was left so incomplete. And then the the reception that I got was like a million times better than anything I ever would have ever. It was a New York Times bestseller, right? Yeah, I mean, it was on the extended list, but it still counts. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> Absolutely. And you've since adapted it into a one-man show. Which is another thing that I never thought I would do. But there was a, a young producer that I didn't even know very well who was just, he helped set up this concert that I did. And as we were, it was out on Fire Island, and we had this long drive together. And on the drive, he's like, have you thought about adapting it into a show? And I was like, oh, really? I don't know. Ooh. Because I just, I never, doing the thing in the first place was so hard. Yeah. But then he was like, no, really, you know, if you if you think about it, and there's so much music in the book also, and there's a way to do it. And I was like, huh. So I, I got in touch with my friend Steve Mailer, who's a director I did, I did Henry V with. Oh, wow. Um, and we'd been looking for something to do together in, over the years. And I said, do you have any, he had read my book, I knew that, um, and he'd been very nice about it, but I was like, does this seem like it makes any sense to you at all? And would you help me? Because I wouldn't know where to begin. Oh, yeah. Because the book is, you know, I think a book is sort of like a tree. Like there's a main trunk of story, but there's so many branches that could go off in all sorts of directions. And 
And a show can't do that. It has to be much more streamlined. And especially, you know, one-man show, especially a one-man show that's like 80 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever. And so he did a draft where he kind of cut cut down to the basic, the two main threads, like just really focused them in. And then once he did that, then I could start to see, oh, okay, how music could fold in and out of it. And we put together a reading, just a presentation at Ars Nova. And, and you know, I rehearsed it with my band. I mean, I'd been doing concerts with my band, so there were, like, I had these great musicians that I loved working with. And we we had like rehearsals where um, we wrote new material, new songs for it. But I also had a couple of the songs that I'd written already about my mom that we folded into it, and you know, figured out ways to fold in rent material, but in a in a meaningful way, and not just like not just like greatest hits thing. Right. And um, we did this pre- this presentation at Ars Nova, and I invited people like my brother, and you know, uh, Michael Greif, and people that I knew would tell me the truth. And tell us the main thing we really want to know is like, is this even, does this even work in this medium? Is this does this make sense to do? And everyone unequivocally said yes, keep going. So, where are you with it now? Well, we did it. Then we did a production at this wonderful theater in Pittsburgh, where I've done many shows over the years, including Hedwig, uh-huh. um, City Theater, and that was our first like full product, fully realized production. Um, and then f- after that, uh, did it in. Korea of all places, wow! Um, which is where a few years ago, Adam and I, Adam Pascal and I, went back on tour with Rent, and we performed it in among other um, all over the country, here in the U.S., but also in Japan and Korea. And the producer in Korea knew about my show, and he said, "Would you like to do it here?" I was like, "Sure." Wow! So you're huge in Korea. <laughs> and then, and then uh, at Nymph here in New York, and then uh, the the the. Owner, uh, producer of the Chocolate Factory, mm-hmm. the theater in, in London, got wind of it and he took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we did it at the Chocolate Factory. And then David oh. Mervish up in Toronto saw it at the Chocolate Factory and we did it in Toronto. And then our hope is to do it here in New York soon, but If Then had been percolating at the same time. So until my journey with If Then is done, Without You is on hold, but it's the kind of thing like I could do it any time. But, so but I would love to do it here in New York. How did you decide of all the material that you had in the book what you were going to include in the show? Did you pick a theme and just from the book and kind of go with it? Well, the main the main thing with with you know Steve was right about is to just distill it down to the to the most important things of Jonathan and my mom. I mean the the you know the show focuses so zeroes in on that. Mm-hmm. You know, meeting Jonathan, rent happening, Jonathan dying at the same time my mom being diagnosed and going back and forth to see her and then her passing, you know. But I mean, the show, it's a, it's, a, it's a memorial of all of that. But one of the things I didn't know until I was actually performing the show, I, I feel like um, one of the things that the show can do that the book can't do is by virtue of me being in front of you, telling you the story, it demonstrates that all the things that I talk about in the story are true that you can live through these things and come out the other side Mm -hmm. and so I feel like in that sense it's it it can achieve something that the book alone can't but they but they're they're sort of like companion pieces to each other I guess god I'd love to see it well it has been an honor I've been wanting to meet you for years and years and so it's been such a pleasure thank you for doing the theater people podcast thank you thanks for being here Anthony my pleasure (laughs) 
Today's episode was produced by Patrick Hines and Mike Jensen. Special thanks, as always, to BroadwaySpotted.com, Davenport Theatrical, Steve Tipton, Bradley Bean, and Ellen Marsh. I wanted to give a special shout-out to our listener, Carissa Strauss, who tweeted a bunch of great questions for Anthony, of which we used many. I also wanted to give a special thanks to James Marino of BroadwayRadio.com, who's been helping us figure out some sound issues. Please check out his great show, This Week on Broadway, at BroadwayRadio.com. Just a reminder that you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Theater People, or by searching Theater People Podcast. Like us on Facebook, and find all of our episodes at our website, www.theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L.com. We'll be back in two weeks with the fabulous Leslie Margarita. Until then, fellow theater people, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. I'm Anthony Rapp, and you're listening to the Theater People Podcast.